invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter 14. It will not be God through Jordan leading the Israelites, but it will be God through the Red Sea leading the Israelites this morning. We pick up our study through the book of Exodus. We are looking at this wonderful climactic passage in the second half of Exodus chapter 14, looking at verses 15 through 31, the Egyptians are pursuing the Israelites in the wilderness now. The Israelites have their backs to the Red Sea. The Israelites have complained to Moses, have you brought us out into the wilderness to die in the wilderness You should have just left us in Egypt, as we told you. And we read these words in in verses 13 and, and 14. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. The Lord will fight for you, and indeed, he does. Let's look at verses 15 through 31 together. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, 
that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And thus far, God's holy word. Let's go to him in prayer. Our God, how we thank you for your great might and for your great power, but especially for your great grace that saves your people. And so, O God, we thank you that you are for us. And as your word tells us, if you are for us, who can be against us? Write your word on our hearts this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you remember the the movie, the the, the cartoon, the, The Prince of Egypt. And before the the crossing of the Red Sea, Miriam and Zipporah, uh, Moses' wife, uh, uh, sang a song, uh, beautifully, by the way, being sung by Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston in the movie that goes like this, who knows what miracles you can perform when you believe. And then the Red Sea parts. Good Hollywood, but bad theology, and it's no reflection of the book of Exodus. In fact, Israel was not believing at all. In fact, it is possible, as we'll see in a minute, that Moses was in a total state of unbelief. But ultimately, God brings salvation for his people and also judgment on his enemies. I want to see four ways in particular that we see a distinction here that God makes in our passage. The first is that God rescues Israel and hardens Egypt. He rescues Israel and hardens Egypt. See how this passage begins? It begins um, somewhat uh, 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 bizarrely, it seems, with a rebuke. Moses has just said in verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. And then we read, the Lord says to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. It's unclear what this is all about. Why do you cry to me, the Lord says to him. 
Maybe, as some commentators say, Moses is, of course, the covenant mediator of his people, and so uh, the people are crying out, and so Moses, as the covenant mediator of the people, is being rebuked because the people are crying. That's one possible uh, understanding here. Another possibility is that uh, Moses has fallen into his old ways, his old habits, that he himself has fallen into to crying out in disbelief, as we've seen a couple times in the past in the book of um, Exodus. Or perhaps Moses was simply praying, and God says, now is time for action. In fact, this is how uh, Charles Spurgeon interpreted this passage. Spurgeon says this, Far be it from me ever to say a word in disparagement of the holy, happy, heavenly exercise of prayer. But, beloved, there are times when prayer is not enough, when prayer itself is out of season, when we have prayed over a matter to a certain degree, it then becomes sinful to tarry any longer. Our plain duty is to carry our desires into action. And having asked God's guidance and having received divine power from on high to go at once to our duty with any longer deliberation or delay. One of those, perhaps, is why God issues this statement or rebuke to Moses. And in verse 16, God tells Moses to lift up his staff over the sea and to divide it, lift it up, to stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people may go through the sea on dry ground. Remember, earlier in Exodus, Moses lifted up the staff to bring on the plagues. Now he lifts it up for Israel's deliverance. Remember earlier also we said that this staff was called the staff of God. It was through it that, that, that God worked mighty miracles. It was a visual display of God's power. We also see here that the divided sea would become dry ground. It's actually the, the same Hebrew word, dry ground, that appears in Genesis 1-9, where the waters, it says in Genesis 1-9, were gathered to one place and dry ground appeared. The Hebrew word itself is actually rare in the Old Testament. It's not used very much. And in some ways, we can say that this exodus, this salvation through the Red Sea, is really a, a kind of a, a new creation. And as Dr. Currid points out in his commentary, the word itself means it's, it's withered, it's, it's, it's without moisture. So in other words, God made here essentially parched ground. There would be no slogging through muddy water as we would expect when the waters part, right? It's going to be mud. 
It's going to be hard to get through. But no, it's completely dry. Almost like walking through a sidewalk or a paved road. That's how God made it for quick and easy travel for the Israelites. And then verse 17 tells us, God says, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and his host, his chariots, and his horsemen. God is leading Israel to safety, and he's preparing Egypt for destruction. Remember earlier, we've seen that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, but now he hardens the hearts of his people, the hearts of his army. He is omnipotent. He doesn't have to harden just the heart of one. He can harden the hearts of many, his entire army here. And why does he do that? So that they foolishly pursue. And God ultimately gets the glory in their destruction. God alone parts the sea so Israel can pass through on dry land. God alone hardens their hearts so they pursue, leading to their doom. We're familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism that says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Human beings were created, Scripture teaches us, for fellowship with God to live for God, to enjoy God. Yet scripture also tells us that those who don't come to God, those who don't also in another sense bring glory to God. And what is that? They are glorified. God is glorified in their judgment. Ezekiel 39, God says this, I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid on them. My glory will be on the nations, even in my judgment. Matthew Henry writes on this passage, This principle shall be admitted and established Among them more than ever that the God of Israel is a great and glorious God. He is known to be so even among the heathen that have not or read not his written word by the judgments which he executes. God will receive glory whether in salvation or in judgment. Second distinction that we see in this passage is light and darkness. Light and darkness. Verse 19 is a key turning point in this passage. It's, it's a peculiar event. It's a, it's a dramatic event. Look at verses 19 and 20. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them 
And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Israel, uh, of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Interesting. The cloud goes from leading the Israelites to going behind the Israelites and coming between Israel and the Egyptians. Now, clearly, what this cloud is doing, it is protecting Israel from Egypt. God here is protecting his people. It no longer needs to lead. He no longer needs to lead. He's told Moses where to go, go forward, even though the sea is there. How can we go forward? Well, God's going to make a way. But it's also interesting that God's presence had been a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. But now we see the two are brought together. Now on Egypt's side, it's cloud and darkness. But on Israel's side, it's fire. As verse 20 says, it lit up the night. So the two images come together here in between Israel and Egypt. God is protecting and leading, in a sense, giving light to his people while his enemies are still in the dark. And, of course, this theme of light and Darkness is an important biblical theme. In the Gospel of Matthew, at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, Matthew quotes Isaiah, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. The Apostle Paul says in Second. Corinthians, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what fellowship has light with darkness? Common biblical theme. Once again, we also see this common theme of God's protection of his people. In the great Psalms in the Bible, Psalm 91, a wonderful psalm that is a psalm of God's protection of his people. God is our refuge and fortress in whom we find shelter, Psalm 91 tells us. God protects us from the snare of the fowler, that is, the scheming enemies who tried to destroy his people. God protects us from pestilence, from plague. He protects us from, quote, the attacks of the enemies. His wonderful verses in Psalm 91, 11, and 12, he commands his angels to guard his saints. God, here we see in these verses, is both protector and light in darkness for his people. A third contrast that we see in this passage is firm footing for his people Verses muck, we'll just say that, 
for his enemies. Muck versus firm footing. While God is protector and light, he is also preeminently savior. He makes a way through the sea. He destroys his enemies so Israel can get to safety and to freedom. Look at verse 21. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. Notice the sea was divided by a strong east wind all night. Now, the east wind, if you can picture where, where, where we are here with the Red Sea, Egypt is to the, to the west of the Red Sea, so that the, the, the Israelites are to the west of the wet Red Sea. That means the east wind is blowing from the opposite side. So in other words, the, the Israelites are standing on the seashore and they are having to wait all night long. As, they, as the wind drives back the water of the sea, standing there, waiting, patiently, impatiently, for the wind to drive back and part the sea so that they can, can pass over and go to safety and go to freedom. But we also see, interestingly, as God often does. He uses means. He uses means in the lives of his people. He can do whatever he wants. He could have immediately parted the sea, but he uses the wind to part the sea, just like he could immediately convert someone, like he did the Apostle Paul, but he usually uses us to bring the gospel to people, to bring them to the Lord. But still, this is a miracle. Donald Bridge tells the story of an African-American or or a congregation that included some African-Americans who were accustomed to answering the preacher as as he went along. And on one occasion, he says, they were addressed by someone with liberal leanings, tending to dismiss the miracles of the Bible. And he referred in his sermon to the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. And one African-American shouted, praise the Lord, taking all them children through the deep waters. What a mighty miracle. And the preacher frowned. It was not a miracle, he explained condescendingly. They were doubtless in marshland. The tide was ebbing and the children of Israel picked their way across in six inches of water. Praise the Lord, the African-American, unabashed, drowning all those Egyptians in six inches of water. What a mighty miracle. God uses means. It was, in fact... Deep water. Notice verse 22. 
The people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The the Hebrew word for wall here means, as Doug Stewart points out, a very large wall, usually a city wall at least 20 feet high, at least 20 feet high. We need deep water, I think. I haven't gone out and tested You need deep water to make two walls 20 feet high. And that's what God does. And this is what Israel passes through. And then verse 23, just as God had said, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them a decision that they would later regret as verse 14 said, the Lord will fight for you, and in fact, he does. First of all, we see in verses 24 and 25, he, he throws them into a, a panic. He, he clogs, it says here, verse 25, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove uh, heavily. You'll see, and if you have a, the ESV, you'll have a little note there that says binding their their chariot uh, wheels in some text, but in the Hebrew literally says removing. Uh, literally, the, the Hebrew word means to, to take away. So either the text means that the wheels fell off or they got clogged, so clogged that they were of no use. But notice what this is telling us. It means that God change the hard-packed bed of sea back to what it would have been if he had simply uh, taken the water out and turned them into a wall. It would have been very wet and muddy. And this leads then to verse 25, the the Egyptians saying, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against Israel. The Egyptians. Let's get away, not knowing, in fact, what was coming next. Really, it was a great act of faith for Israel to move forward. I wonder what we would have done if we were in that situation. The waters part. We have these big walls of water. We're not talking about going from here to the cars. We're talking about a pretty good trip to get across the Red Sea. What would we have done? It takes faith to walk between these two high walls of water. It would look pretty threatening to walk between the water. John Mackay puts it, it was an act of faith to walk through that watery valley and take advantage of the salvation the Lord had provided for them. You know, brothers and sisters, it requires faith to follow God through all kinds of difficult situations. But at the same time, it calls us to say, I trust God 
to know what is best for me. To know what is best in this situation. And I will follow what he has opened up for me. I will follow where he is leading me. William Gurnall, I'm rereading, reading for the second time his classic work, The Christian in Complete Armor. And William Gurnall in that work says this, Should you see a man in a ship throw himself overboard into the sea, you might at first think him out of his wits. But if a little while after you should see him stand safe on the shore and the ship swallowed up in, of the, in the waves you then think he took the wisest course. Faith sees the world and all the pleasures of sin sinking. There is a leak in them which the wit of man cannot stop. Now, is it not better to swim through a sea of trouble and get safe to heaven at last than to sit in the lap of sinful pleasures till we drown in hell's gulf? Fourth and finally, we see life and death. Life and death. Verses 26 to 28, we see that the Israelites pass through. God tells Moses to stretch out his hand. The waters come back upon the Egyptians and their chariots and their horsemen. He did so. Verse 27 says, the sea returned to its normal course when morning appeared. We'll come back to that. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on the left. The deliverance of God's people necessarily entails the destruction of their enemies. Necessarily entails. And God is glorified in it. On one hand, God had given ample evidence and ample opportunities to the Egyptians to believe. And some of them, in fact, did. We saw that in chapter 12 when the Israelites left. Some went with them. Some, in fact, did. We can also say that the death of the Egyptian soldiers in the Red Sea was certainly just retribution for the drowning of Hebrew babies. I think that's fair to say. Justice is done. God has been glorified. But simply unbelief, Scripture tells us. Unbelief in the midst of all kinds of other evidence is also justice done. For the first time in 430 years, God's people are safe, God's people are free. Yes, there are battles ahead, but they are free to be God's people, free to be God's servants. 
God not only defeats Israel's army, but one last time, he also defeats Egypt's gods. It's, there's, it's significant. It's not a coincidence when verse 20 tells, 27 tells us that it was when the morning appeared that Moses stretched his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. As the sun was coming up, why is that significant? It's significant because the chief Egyptian deity was the sun god, Ra, which we've seen in the past. So once, we, once again, we see the Lord victorious over the helpless, pathetic gods or non-gods of Egypt. And then verses 30 and 31 bring this passage to a conclusion. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Both Verses actually use the Hebrew word for hand. Uh, We see this, verse 30, the hand of the Egyptians. But it's also used in verse 31 that's translated in the ESV, power. Israel saw the great power, or really the great hand that the Lord had used against the Egyptians. Dr. Currid says that this points back to uh, chapter 6, verse 1 where the Lord says to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. The hand, the strong and mighty hand of the Lord. The hand, the power of the Lord is supreme over all earthly powers, including the most powerful power on earth. As the great Martin Luther hymn puts it, that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. We also see wonderfully this passage ends in verse 31 describing Israel's faith. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, they believed in the Lord, and in his servant Moses. They believed the Lord and in his servant Moses. It's interesting here that The same word for Israel's fear of the Lord is the same word that's used for their fear or their terror back in verse 10 of this same chapter. Where they feared, they were terrorized when they turned and saw the Egyptians following them. And in some ways there is both a similarity and a difference. As Mackay puts it, on both occasions... 
they were aware of their own insignificance before a power much greater than they themselves could muster. Now, however, it was not the power threatening to destroy them, but it was the hand of the Lord himself stretched out for their deliverance. A power much greater than themselves. The prince of Egypt, we could say, was wrong on many counts. It's an entertaining flick. I'm not necessarily promoting it, though. We cannot do miracles when we believe. God did the miracle and more. And in fact, believing itself is because of God's miraculous work. The miracle first, and then God delivers. God delivers when we cannot save ourselves. He changes our hearts. And then comes godly fear and faith. And it's all from God. So we praise God today for our exodus, salvation, by faith, grace of God, through Christ alone. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your great work of redemption, your great work of salvation. God, may we sing your praises, sing to your glory, and rejoice in your good work. How we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.